Hi, this is Pastor Nelson Mercado. Thank you for tuning in to our podcast from the Nashville First Seventh-day Adventist Church. I hope you are blessed by today's message. And I will lift up one more prayer as we open God's Word. Father, I pray now as uh, we open your Word, Lord, uh, that you will grant us the Spirit, your Spirit, to help us to understand your, the message, especially as we look forward to the second coming of Jesus. It is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Today is our second part of the series based on the book, The Present Truth and the Three Angels' Message. And so I invite you now to, in your um, bulletins, you have your study guide, because we're going to do some studying today. So you have your study guide, and as usual, uh, the words in the blanks are underlined on the screen. And today we're going to focus on the second coming of Jesus, or the manner of his coming. The manner of his coming is really, uh, as we've titled it on the bulletin, um, you know, we, uh, I've shared this with you already, the reality, today's reality, what we see all around us, the pain, the suffering that is the result of living in a sinful world. This is our reality. We cannot escape it. Everywhere we go, every time we turn on the news, there's so much bad news, uh, uh, riots and violent riots. Uh, I, you know, COVID, two and a half, almost three years, still uh, 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 going around and getting people sick. We, we think about wars. Uh, um, I was just thinking this week about the war in Ukraine, which, by the way, is going on five months already. And it, it, it's a sad thing that after a while, we sort of get used to these things. So it's been five months, and it's still going on, and everyone, every day we, we, I get a notification on my phone, oh, Russia did this, or Ukraine did this, but somehow it doesn't seem like important anymore because we've gotten used to it. We hear it all the time, but it's still there. It's still there. The, the, the mass shootings, that's becoming a weekly thing somewhere in the country, mass shootings, violence, innocent people dying. And so when one talks about a day, a time, when these things will be no more, it's hard to believe. It's hard for us to imagine a world where this is not what we, what we constantly hear. But friends, believe it or not, the day is coming, and to me it cannot come soon enough, when all this reality will be a thing of the past. Oh, somebody ought this more should be saying amen, because this is not what we want. The, the violence, the murder, the rape, the burglary, the cheating, the lying, all that's our reality will be a thing of the past. Don't take my word for it. Nahum 1.9 tells us, what do you conspire against the Lord? He will make an utter end of it. Notice, affliction will not rise up a second time. Aren't you glad for that? It will not happen again, the Bible tells us. The Apostle John, when he, when he has this vision of the new Jerusalem about what life will be after the second coming of Jesus, we read in Revelation 21.4 that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, there shall be no more pain, for the former, former things have passed away. And more, more could be said about what heaven will be like. We can talk all day long about what heaven will be like. Let us focus on the, uh, on the, most, on the greatest event in the history of humanity. An event that is happening really soon, and that is the second coming of Jesus. When Jesus was almost finishing his, his ministry, when it was almost time to go home, he, he told his disciples, listen guys, the mission is over, I must go home. 
Imagine if you had spent three and a half years with a master of the universe. He was your best friend. He, he was there uh, healing the sick. Uh, he, he was here resurrecting the dead. And you were there to see it all. Amen. And he blessed you in an immense way. Now he says he's leaving. You know, I'd be sad too, but Jesus told him, John 1, 14, 1 through 3, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If I were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, what is he going to happen? I will come again and receive you to myself. Jesus promised it. We can take it to the bank. He is coming back. You know, the coming of Jesus, the soon coming of Jesus should be a source of encouragement to everybody because it reminds us that this world isn't all there is. And you know... The reality is, you know, we are, we're Seventh-day Adventists. The word Adventist means that we believe in the soon coming of Jesus. But we're not the only ones. We're not the only ones who believe in the coming of Jesus. In fact, uh, some years ago, the Pew Research Institute uh, uh, conducted a study, uh, a survey, uh, asking this question. How, how many people, how many Americans, uh, Christian Americans, believe in the coming of Jesus or the soon coming of Jesus? Notice what it said. Roughly 48%, almost 48% of Christians in the United States say that they believe that Christ, notice, will definitely come. So for that 48%, uh, 27% believe that he will definitely come in the next 40 years, and then 20% that he will probably come in the next 40 years. And this was a number of years ago that this survey was taken. Now, a little bit fewer there, notice 38% says that this will definitely not happen, that is in the next 40 years, so 10% of the 38%, and then 28% that will probably not happen in the next 40 years. But he, so he's coming, but the, what, what we want to answer today is how will he come? Because believe it or not, even though there's Christ, many Christians believe that Jesus is coming soon, not everybody believes the same thing about how he will come. Remember last week we talked about the fact that Christians today, many Christians, unfortunately, because they ignore the message of the sanctuary, which is the object lesson of the plan of salvation, an incomplete gospel is being proclaimed around the world. And when we think about the coming of Jesus in the same way, when people talk about the coming of Jesus, they don't talk about it in the same way. One day, many, many Christians believe that one day Jesus is going to come secretly, unheard, unseen, and quietly snatched believers away. This is called what? The secret rapture. You know, the secret rapture is the most common, most popular belief about the manner of the coming of Jesus in evangelical Christianity today. It is the most popular belief. And because it is the most popular belief, it is important that we become familiar with it because when you talk to others about Christ, uh, his return, when, when, when you're trying to witness about this, you're, you're certainly going to hear about it. It's important that you become familiar with this. Okay? Now, most adherents, notice the secret rapture theory, most adherents to the, the secret rapture theory is what is called premillennial dispensationalism. We're going to define these words here in a second. Premillennial dispensational, this is what they're called. And what does this mean? Well, the term dispensation, notice, has been attributed to John Nelson Darby. He was an Anglican priest who developed this uh, variety of futurist premillennialism, and he called dispensationalism after a division of history into dispensations or eras. He, he sort of divided history into chunks. And notice what, what these chunks are. So notice, dispensationalists quibble over the number and the names of these dispensations. 
But most American dispensationalists follow C.I. Scofield's sevenfold scheme. So notice these are the seven dispensations that they believe in. So you have the dispensation of innocence. That is from creation to the fall. Then you have the dispensation of conscience from the fall to the flood. Then the dispensation of human government as the structures of society start to develop. Then you have the dispensation of promise from Abraham to Moses. The dispensation of the law from Moses to Christ. The dispensation of grace that involves the church age. And finally, the dispensation of the kingdom, which happens through this millennium, this thousand years that we read about in Revelation 20. By the way, our third message on the series is about this thousand years of Revelation. So notice these are these dispensations that most of these people that believe in a secret rapture believe in. Now, before we go any further, it's important that we understand that there are different views concerning when Jesus will come in comparison with these thousand years of Revelation. Okay, so notice the first one. It's called premillennialism. Premillennialism, notice that the belief is here that Jesus comes before the thousand years of Revelation. Revelation chapter 20. Remember I, I said that these, secret, these people that believe in the secret rapture are premillennial dispensationalists. Dispensation because they believe in the division of history that way. And then they believe that Jesus will come before the thousand years of Revelation 20. Do we believe that? We, are, we fall into this camp, friends. We are premillennial. That means we believe because it's clear in Revelation 19 and 20 that Jesus comes before the thousand years. Okay. But now there is something called post-millennialism, as the name suggests. Notice Jesus will come after a 1,000-year period of peace and prosperity on earth. Somehow, at some point in history, there's going to be a 1,000 years of peace. Hard to believe, isn't it? And after that 1,000 years of peace, Jesus will come. Now, not many believe these, this one anymore, but there's still some. In fact, I remember having a conversation with one guy who told me, that he believed that we're living in that 1,000 years of peace right now. Are you living under a rock or something? I don't know. But some people believe this. And then you have a third category, amillennialism, which is the belief that this 1,000 years is not a literal 1,000 years, but it is a symbolic 1,000 years. And so again, we fall under this premillennialism. Actually, most Christians today are premillennial. Now, while John Nelson Darby, this Anglican police, was oft, is often attributed to, to be the source of this, uh, of this futuristic premillennial dispensationalism that leads to the secret rapture theory, we need to go a little bit further back in history to find the origins of this, okay? Futurism, and we're going to define this in a second, um, can be argued that it's the actually ancestor of the secret rapture theory, and it actually came from Catholicism. During the, uh, the Protestant Reformation, uh, uh, the reformers were gaining a lot of traction. They were growing, and, and, and they were proclaiming. One of the messages that the reformers were proclaiming is the role of the papacy in end-of-time events. Uh, the fact that the, pap- the pope is, the, uh, is a little horn of Revelation and, and of Daniel, that, that, that he is the Antichrist power, and, and, and this was gaining a lot of foothold, uh, attraction. Uh, people were, were, were listening to this. This was putting a lot of negative attention on Catholicism. So they had to do something to take away the pressure. And so it's called the Counter-Reformation. What they did is they hired these Jesuit priests. One of them, his name is Francisco Ribera. 
And he developed this, um, this new way of interpreting Bible prophecy. And, and the first one, Lord, is this futurism. And futurism is defined as the Christian eschatological view. Now, eschatological comes from eschatology, the study of end-time events, that interprets portions of the books of Daniel, the books of Ezekiel, and the book of Revelation as future events in a literal, physical, apocalyptic, and global context. So in other words, listen, these prophecies about Daniel and Revelation, that's thousands of years in the future. You don't have to worry about that. Because that's not going to happen until thousands of years in the future. So that's the way it sort of takes away the pressure off the papal power because it can't be the Pope because that's not until thousands of years in the future. Futurism, that's what they developed. And then you had a second one developed, developed called Preterism. And here, it interprets the book of Daniel as referring to events that happened from the 7th century BC to the 1st century AD while seeing the prophecies of the book of Revelation as events happening in the first century AD. So if we were to talk about the prophecies today, about these end time prophecies, say, just come on now. That stuff was fulfilled hundreds and thousands of years ago. That was in the past. So it can't be the Pope because that was right there in the past. Preterism. And there's a third category called historicism. And, and, and this here is a method of interpreting biblical prophecies which associates symbols with historical persons, nations, or events in the, in the uh, main primary texts of interest uh, to Christian historicists include apocalyptic literature such as the book of Daniel and Revelation. Here is where we fall, friends. This is our, our camp, as it were, because as Seventh-day Adventists, we are historicists. In other words, we interpret these prophecies as a straight line in history. They started to be fulfilled in the time that they were written, but they follow all along a straight line in history until the time of the end. Historicism, this is where, where we fall as Seventh-day Adventists. So notice we are premillennial historicists, if you were to define what we are. But again, many Christians today believe that soon Jesus will come and secretly snatch believers away, leaving everybody else behind, and thereby providing a second chance of salvation to those who are left behind. Okay. And this will start, notice, a period of seven years in which it is believed the tribulation will occur and the Antichrist will appear. And by the way, you know, I'm sort of generalizing and, and trying to summarize quickly the secret rapture theory, highlighting the more important points of it, okay, so that you understand uh, what they believe. And so we think about it. If they say that there's going to be a seven year period of tribulation, you must assume that there's somewhere in the Bible that talks about a period of seven years of tribulation. They got to get it from somebody, somewhere, right? It must be in the Bible somewhere. So let's look at it where it is. Okay. And believe it or not, is actually found in the book of Daniel. Daniel. So we're going to read Daniel chapter, by the way, notice here, this is the image here, uh, uh, sort of like a, a quick summary. Where does the seven-year tribulation come from? So notice, uh, um, at some point in history, Jesus will come and, and rapture the church away. That starts that period of seven years, and then halfway through the great tribulation starts, the Antichrist appears. But again, this comes from the book of Daniel. So let's read Daniel. Daniel chapter 9, in verses 24 through 27. We should, some of us should be familiar with this prophecy. Notice, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, 
to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, this shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again on the, and the wall, even in troublesome times. And after, that, uh, after the 62 weeks, the Messiah shall, shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with flood, and till the end of war, desolations are determined. Now, there, there are, there's a lot in here. There is a lot in, in, in those passages. Notice the next one. It says, then he shall confirm a covenant for many for one week. Right? But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an, an end to sacrifice and offerings. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation was determined, is poured out on the desolate. Yeah, there's a lot of material there. But here, notice that the, the verse 24 starts by saying, 70 weeks are determined for your people. Now, Daniel is a Jew. So here, uh, Gabriel, who is explaining this prophecy to Daniel, is saying, listen, 70 weeks are determined for your people, for the Jews. But this word determined is important, because the word determined comes from this Hebrew hatak, which means to be cut off. And so the natural question is, where is it cut off from? Where is this 70 weeks cut off from? Well, remember, uh, uh, there is no chapter divisions in the, in the original manuscripts. So this is a, 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 a continuous line of thought. If you go to chapter 8 of Daniel, you will read about uh, uh, Daniel's encounter again with Gabriel. And Gabriel is giving him another prophecy, in particular, one about 2,300 days. You've heard this prophecy before. Daniel 8, 14, after, uh, um, uh, at, the, at the end of the 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Now, there's a time prophecy that Daniel is given in chapter 8, but what you read as you follow chapter 8 is that Daniel could not understand it. In fact, it tells us that he even got sick because no one understood it. So Daniel could not understand the prophecy. And so sometime later, which which is what we read in chapter 9, Gabriel comes back to explain the prophecy. But what he does now is in order for him to understand the prophecy, he breaks it down into smaller chunks. So... Uh, it's cut off, thought as the Daniel 9 is a continuation of chapter 8, thus the 70 weeks are cut off from the 2300 days of Daniel 8, 14. He, break, he breaks it down into smaller chunks. All right? So now we are told in, here in Daniel when this prophecy is going to start. Notice, we are told that it's from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem. Why did Jerusalem need to be built, by the way? They've been destroyed by the Babylonians. Remember, Babylon destroyed the temple and Jerusalem takes people with him to Babylon. But Babylon doesn't last forever because Medo-Persia comes, right? And now under the Medo-Persian Empire, they are allowed, the Jews are allowed to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, rebuild the city. But if you read the books of Nehemiah and Ezra, you'll find that they ran into some problems, in their process of building. And so uh, a number of decrees had to be given. And notice the fourth decree, the fourth decree, we're told by scholars and historians, carried the full weight of the law of them starting this, this construction process. And we're told by historians that it was 457 B.C. This is a solid date in history. It is not just Seventh-day Adventists who agree with this. Just look it up. Okay? 
So we are told from the get-go here when this prophecy of the 70 weeks that are determined for the Jews, for Daniel's people, when that's going to start. Now, 70 weeks, again, scholars, historians, they believe that the 70 weeks are symbolic. In other words, this is not a literal 70 weeks. 70 weeks literal is only a, a, a little over a year, okay? And so they believe this is a symbolic. Well, why do they believe symbolic? Notice it says there are 70 weeks equal to 490 literal years. Well, there is a, um, a rule in Scripture of interpreting time prophecies, and you've heard this before. A prophetic day equals what? A little year. And again, this is not only Seventh-day Adventist. We don't have a patent on that. This is, you know, over the years, uh, 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 the reformers all interpreted the same way that a prophetic day equals a literal year. Okay, so you think about it, seven days per week, you multiply seven times 70, that's 490 prophetic days, and so that's why there's literal years. And this concept of a day for a year, you find it there in Numbers 1434, Ezekiel 46. By the way, let's be honest, there isn't a, pa- a Bible passage that says specifically, this is how you interpret time prophecy. But we can see the trends there in Numbers, Ezekiel. In fact, even Jesus and and Luke 13, 32 applied the same principle, okay? So notice then that the 70 weeks are divided. So you see see how Daniel, uh, Gabriel does. He breaks these things down in smaller chunks so that Daniel could understand it. So it's divided in seven weeks, 62 weeks, and then in in the one week left over. And so notice then here, we already told when the prophecy starts, 457 B.C., when the, uh, uh, the, the decree is given. So seven weeks is 49 years. Seven times seven is 49. So seven, uh, 49 prophetic days, literal years. And that takes you to the year 408. You don't see it there on the screen. 408 B.C., uh, and, and 408 B.C. doesn't seem to be all that important in the prophecy. The reason that is, uh, uh, scholars believe it is mentioned is because it took 49 years for the first phase of the rebuilding process of Jerusalem to, to be completed. And they believe that happened in 408 B.C., but it's ne- not necessarily important in the prophecy. Then you have the 62 weeks. That's the second section of it. And you uh, multiply seven, seven days times 62, that's 434 years. So if you go from the year 408 B.C. and you had 434 years, that takes you to the year 27 A.D. 27 A.D. Okay? Now, we are told in Daniel 9.25, from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah, the prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. How much is 7 plus 62? 69. So in essence, we could paraphrase and say that from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be 69 weeks, which is 7 plus 62. But regardless, that ends in the year 27 AD. So what happened in 27 AD? Well, the the word Messiah here means the anointed one. So, So do we know when Jesus was anointed? We do? When was he anointed? When he was baptized. Notice Luke chapter 3, verses 1 and 21. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when all the people were being baptized, it came to pass that Jesus was also baptized. And while he prayed, the heaven was open. So Jesus' baptism was also his anointing. That's when he, he, he starts his work as Messiah. His ministry, he starts there. And that happened, according to Luke, on the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, which historians tell us was 27 A.D. Isn't, that, isn't the Bible amazing? Amen. 
is fulfilled with mathematical precision. It proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is the Messiah. 27 AD. Okay? Now, this, so far we have covered the first 69 weeks of the 70-week prophecy. So how many weeks do we have left? We got one week left, right? Of the 70-week prophecy. The first 69 weeks takes us to the year 27 AD. So basically what we have in this prophecy is seven years left over. One week is seven days, seven prophetic days or seven years. So we have seven years left. So if we were to add seven years to 27 AD, where does that take you? The year 34 AD. 34 AD. Now, we're going to get back to that. Now, notice Daniel 9, 26 and 27. Because the prophecy continues. The explanation continues. After the 62 weeks... The Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. Then he shall confirm uh, from, uh, with many for one week, uh, but in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. Okay, so notice here, it says after the 62 weeks. This, com- this can confuse some people, but Gabriel says seven weeks and 62 weeks. All right, seven plus 62 is 69. When he continues explaining, he just says 62 weeks because the seven had already passed. But we could, you could also paraphrase this by saying after the 69th week, the Messiah shall be cut off for not for himself. And notice, he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. That's that last week, week number 70, okay? And notice that in the middle of that last week, what does he do? He shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, Okay? So Jesus starts his ministry in the year 27 AD, the very year he was anointed, he was uh, uh, baptized, the ministry starts. Uh, His ministry lasts three and a half years. That takes you to the year 31, which is the middle of that last week, and he puts it into sacrifice and offering because he was crucified. Why, why, Why was this crucifixion the end of sacrifice and offering? Yeah, he's the Lamb of God, right? That takes away the sin of the world. Once Jesus died on the cross, we don't need to do those sacrifices. This is why the veil uh, in the temple between the holy and the most holy place broke in two. Because now we have, uh, you know, we can come boldly to the throne of grace, as it were. Okay? So notice, in the middle of the week, Jesus is crucified and puts an end to sacrifice and offering. So, we still have three and a half years left. Half of the week, half of the last week, we still have it left. So what happened then? So if the first three and a half years of the last week, that's week number 70, ended in the fall of A.D. 31, then the last three and a half years again takes us to the year 34 A.D. But what happened in 34 A.D.? That's when Stephen was stoned. And now the gospel goes to the Gentiles. Remember, the 70 weeks or 490 years were a, a, a testing prophecy, if you will, for the Jews. These the 70 weeks are determined, are cut off from the 2300 days for your people, for the Jews, to see what they would do. And we know that they failed because not only they crucified the Lord, but they, cru- they persecuted it, um, his followers. And, and, and they sort of sealed their, their doom when Stephen was stoned. Now there's persecution, Christians go everywhere, the gospel goes to the Gentiles. And that, notice, marks the end of the 70-week prophecy. It marks the week, uh, the end of the 70-week prophecy. Now, we ask the question, where does the seven years of tribulation come from? Right from here. 
This last week, week number 70, which is seven years, what they do is they grab it from Daniel and they throw it all the way until the end of time and they say that applies now to the Antichrist and not to Jesus. Think about this. This is a prophecy about Christ. Jesus is the one who, having died in the middle of the week, puts an end to sacrifice and offering. And the way, the spin that they give it is, no, 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 that's the Antichrist because the temple is going to be rebuilt in Jerusalem again. And they're going to start doing sacrifices again. And then the Antichrist is going to appear and put an end to it. So now, something that belongs to Christ is applied to the Antichrist. That's where they get it from. This is where they get these uh, uh, um, seven years from. But notice here, this is from the book Daniel uh, by William Shea. The 490 years, in their view, that is in the view of those who believe in a secret rapture, are, are, are not viewed as continuous, but a huge parenthesis or gap is inserted between the force 483 years and the final seven. But as we can see, we, we just went through the passages. There's nothing there that suggests that there's a gap between the, the 69 weeks and the 70. But they got to get it from somewhere. So notice, friends, and I say this respectfully, if some of you are watching, this is not biblical. These 70 weeks, the seven years, rather, are not biblical. But now, let's, let's, let's um, uh, be honest with this. Um, they do have some Bible verses that they use to explain the fact that Jesus is coming secretly. You've probably heard of the like a thief in the night. Is Jesus going to come as a thief in the night? Well, hold on, hold on, Nate. Hold on. The Bible does say he comes as a thief in the night. All right, all right, all right. 1 Thessalonians 5.2, notice. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as what? As a thief in the night. Now, why, why did the Thessalonians knew perfectly that the Lord would come as a thief in the night? Because Jesus said it. Matthew 24, Jesus himself said, I come as a thief. So that's why they knew it, okay? Peter talks about it too. Notice, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. So is Jesus coming as a thief in the night? Yes. However, see, this is a problem. The way they interpret this is that, well, a thief comes secretly. So if a thief comes secretly, that must mean that Jesus comes secretly. But friends, friends, the emphasis made by Scripture is not in the secrecy of the event, but on the unexpected nature of the event. Jesus will come at an hour you do not expect. This is why he consistently tells us, watch and pray. Why are we to watch? Because we don't know when he's coming. Notice Luke 12, 40, the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So friends, again, respectfully, there's nothing biblical about the secret rapture theory, okay? But now, if that's the case, then how will Jesus come? That's what we want to know, okay? And by the way, how Jesus will come is part of the present truth, because as we'll see in a little bit, there's going to be deceptions exactly regarding the coming of Jesus. How will Jesus come? Ooh, boy, there's a couple of things here. You guys are already, I, I should go home. You guys already know this. Let's look at Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Now, when he had spoken these things, by the way, we're going to look at a number of clues now. The first one we find here in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. 
Now when he had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received them out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the like manner as you've seen him go into heaven. So notice that here these angels are telling the disciples, those followers. By the way, it's not just the 12 that are there. Because remember, Paul says that, that even after 500 people witnessed this. So there's a crowd of people there. And, and what, Paul, uh, what, what the, uh, the angels are saying is that, listen, you don't need to expect some kind of ambassador. You don't need to expect some kind of spirit. Jesus is not going to delegate this. He is going to come himself. This is the literal return of Jesus Christ. So this, when you think about the manner, the first clue is the literal return. This same Jesus is not somebody else. Jesus is flesh and bone. He resurrected. He went home like that and flesh and bone. He's coming back. Aren't you glad he's coming back for you, Sherman? It is Jesus himself. This is a literal return. In other words, it's not symbolic. Do you believe, you don't understand that some people believe that the coming of Jesus is symbolic of a meaning that once we, when we find some kind of unity and cohesiveness among, among society, that was mean, that's what it means when Jesus comes. No, no, friends, it's not symbolic. It is a literal return of Jesus. It is him himself that is coming. Now, the second clue is found in this same passage, friends, in the same passage. It says he will come. In like manner, in the same manner as you see him go. So I want you to imagine this. Here, here Jesus is talking, and all of a sudden, he, he starts ascending. And, and, and he's standing on the cloud, and, and, and he's ascending, and, and everybody's looking and looking. If there was binoculars, they would be using binoculars. But they're probably going like this until finally he disappears out of their sight. And the angels say, this same Jesus will come in the same way as you see him go. So notice then, when Jesus comes, he comes from where? He comes from heaven. He comes from the sky. Okay? This is very important. In fact, this is so important that for some reason, God sees the, the, the need to repeat this many times in the, in the New Testament. When God repeats something, it's because he wants you to remember it. Okay? So Jesus comes from the sky. Notice here in uh, Matthew chapter 24, verses 27 and 30, for as lightning comes from the east and flashes into the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Where is lightning? In the sky, right? Then the sign, the sign of the Son of Man will appear where? In heaven. in heaven. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Matthew 26, 64, notice Jesus said to, the, to him, it is as you said, nevertheless I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand with power and coming where? On the clouds of heaven. So when Jesus comes, he comes from the sky. If, if the Jesus that you saw didn't come from the, from the clouds, that's not Jesus. No matter how much he looks like him, no matter how much he sounds like him, that's not Jesus because Jesus comes from the sky. And this leads us to the third um, clue about the manner of the coming of Jesus. It will be visible. Revelation 1-7, behold, he is coming where? With clouds. There it is again. 
And every eye will see him, and, and even though that, those that pierce him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, even so, amen. This, this statement, every eye will see him, is this another way of saying that everybody that's around, everybody that's living, is going to be able to see this event. Okay, you're not going to go to work next day and, and, and hang around the, the water cooler and somebody's going to tap you on the shoulder and say, listen, did you, did you, did you see Jesus come yesterday? Oh, you missed it? Oh, I'll tell you what, it was, it was all over the news. No, 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 friends. Everybody will be able to see him come. Yeah, Mark 13, 26. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of, with great power and glory. They will see that they are the inhabited world. The inhabited world. Not only is it a visible event, but it is an audible event as well. It is an audible event. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with a trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. You know, the trumpet is not a, a, a passive instrument. He repeats this again. Notice here in, in Matthew 24, 31, And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the next. The sound of the trumpet is so loud that it will wake up the dead. Amen. Uh, the dead in Christ will rise first. That's how loud this is, friends. Amen. So it'll be a visible event. It'll be an audible event. What else does the Bible say? Oh, by the way, notice David. David talks about this. Not, not you, David. King David. <laughs> I said, David, and he looked at me. <laughs> and our God shall come and shall not keep silent. A fire shall devour before him, and it will be very tempestuous. He always, he's going to make all kinds of noise. So if you're a heavy sleeper, don't worry. You won't need an alarm because that's, that's going to happen. He's going he's to come. He's going to wake you up. If he wakes up the dead, then he's going to wake you up, Jean-Luc. I tell you, you're not going to keep on sleeping. Yep. And, and David here leads us to the next clue about the coming of Jesus, the fifth clue. And it'll be a very tempestuous, a very tempestuous event. Let's go to 2 Peter 3.10 again. But the day of the Lord shall come to the thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with great noise. And the elements will melt with fervent heat and the earth and the, and the works that are in it will be burned up. You know, notice that those who quote this passage to justify their belief in the uh, secret rapture, only quoted until the comma. Yes. Yeah. But the Lord will come. At, uh, uh, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. See, the Bible says it. But they don't keep on reading because if they kept on reading, that would certainly contradict everything else that they believe. Because on the day that Jesus comes as the Lord uh, as a thief in the night, the great noise, elements will melt, and the earth and the works are burned up. Amen. It'll be very tempestuous. The world will be transformed. It'll be all kinds of chaos all around us. The sixth clue about the coming of Jesus, it'll be a climactic event. And I want you to think about this, friends, about the massive family reunion that will take place on that morning. I don't know if any of you have been, if you have a big family, you have family reunions. Anybody here? Yeah, okay. So, you know, there are some places, you, you know, they make even t-shirts. Oh, you know, the Mercado family reunion, that kind of thing, you know. And they got all kinds of foods. It's a party. And, and it's just a, such a great event because maybe you haven't seen your family members in several years. And it's just a great thing. Well, imagine that you are going to be reunited with those who were separated from you by death. 
And maybe it's been many years. Maybe your parents, it may be your own children, maybe the baby that you, that, that you lost. You know, there about your family reunion. Oh, how great that's going to be. Right? The, 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 the graves will open up. And, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Not as zombies, you know. They're not going to come out like we see in the movies. They're going to come with transformed bodies. Amen. Hey, no more sickness, Nate. You know, Mary's going to have a new body. Isn't that something? Yeah. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. The Lord himself will descend with a shout with, uh, from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. I can't wait, friends. I can't wait. It's going to be a great scene. And by the way, you know, Satan can try to counterfeit all kinds of things. But Satan can't counterfeit this. Because the only one who can bring the dead back to life is Jesus. Satan can't do that. Yeah. And finally, it will be a glorious event. A glorious event. Matthew 16, 27. For the, for the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each one according to his works. Matthew 24, 30. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. See, this time, Jesus is not coming as a lowly little baby with parents that didn't know and, you know, didn't have any influence, that were very poor, born in a manger. No, no, no. This time, Jesus comes as King of kings and Lord of lords and all the beauty and splendor of God. Amen. Yes. Friends, the second coming of Jesus is the greatest event in the history of humanity. Amen. And it is the only solution to the problems of this world. No politician is going to be able. They can promise you all they want, whether you're on the right or on the left. They all promise the same nonsense. That is nonsense. Only Jesus can bring peace to this earth. His return is the only thing that can bring peace to this earth. But friends, the manner of his return is important because there's going to be deceptions about it. Notice Matthew 24, verses 4 and 5. And 23 to 25. Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I'm the Christ, and will deceive many. Notice that he doesn't say he may deceive many. No, he says they, they will deceive many. Do you, do you know why they're going to be deceived? Because they're not studying their word. Then if anyone tells you, look, here's the Christ, there's the Christ, do not believe it, for false Christ and false prophet will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. I already told you about this so that you are not deceived. If you're deceived, it's your own fault because it's right there in the Word of God. In the book, Last Day Events, page... 163, notice what Mrs. White says. Satan will come personating Jesus, working mighty miracles, and men will fall down and worship him as Jesus Christ. We shall be commanded to worship this being whom the world will glorify uh, as Christ. And notice the question, what shall we do? What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it when, when, when this being uh, who looks like just like the Jesus you always imagined, 
He sounds just like the Jesus always imagined. He, he looks like him. He's doing all kinds of miracles. He healed your brother who had cancer. What are you going to do? You better run. She tells us what to do. Tell them that Christ has warned us against just such a foe who is man's worst enemy, yet who claims to be God, and that when Christ shall make his appearance, it will be with power and great glory, accompanied by 10,000 times 10,000 angels and thousands of thousands. And then he shall come, and we shall know his voice. In other words, again, just like Jesus says, because I told you beforehand how I come, so that you are not deceived. Friends, again... The signs in Scripture tell us everywhere that Jesus is coming soon. Amen. And we have been giving clues about how he will come, the manner of his coming so that we are not deceived. And so the news, notice the news of Jesus' soon return and those clues given are part of the present truth for this time that God's remnant people must proclaim because, again, many people, again, the most popular belief is a secret rapture theory, and that's a, a deception from Satan. But you know, the most important thing that you can do, because there's a, there's a lot of information here, but understanding the manner of the coming of Jesus is going to mean nothing if you are not ready for that return. And the only way you can be ready for the coming of Jesus is if you've made Jesus the Savior and Lord of your life. Because if you've made Jesus the Savior and Lord of your life, you know, the song that you guys sang earlier, no one knows the hour. But we don't need to know the hour. Because if you already received Jesus as Savior, you already? When Jesus comes in the clouds of heaven, he will take you with him. So if you have not received Jesus, I'm not going to ask you to stand up. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand because ultimately you know who you are. If you haven't received the gift of salvation, guess what? The time is now. Tomorrow's not guaranteed to you. If you don't accept it now and, 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 and a bus runs over you, guess what? It's, it's late. It's too late. But you receive Jesus today, and you'll be ready for his coming whenever that happens. But if you've already done that, friends, there is a truth that we must be proclaiming. We must telling the world. This is, remember what, Mrs. White, I quoted last week? It is our obligation to proclaim the present truth. This is part of the present truth. Let's proclaim it with power. Amen? Thanks for joining us. If you're ever in the Nashville area, come and visit us at the Nashville First Seventh-day Adventist Church. We're located at 2800 Blair Boulevard in Nashville, Tennessee. You may also visit us at nfsda.org.